The problem was I bought a note based on the perceived value of the property when I should be buying notes based on the cash flow potential of the note. And so that's what I learned first and foremost, and that's carried with me you know, throughout the rest of my time as a uh, full-time investor. What's going on, guys? This is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Martin Sines from Bequest Funds. Martin is a successful note investor. He's going to tell us all about his journey moving from eh, getting fired from the corporate world after getting his MBA to starting his own company, selling it off, and now being a successful note investor. And today, what you're going to learn is how noting the, how note investing works, how note investors survive slash thrive really uh, during a recession how funds, note funds make their money, the different structures of note funds, the types of notes that they invest in, and how Martin and his partners, his employees, focus on the borrower and the borrower's experience to make sure that their note payments are still coming in. Martin and his investors are still getting paid even when times get tough. I think note investing is a great opportunity that a lot of folks out there just don't know about and uh, presents really awesome opportunity for potential consistent cash flows as long as uh, you know you're inviting or in, investing in the right fund the right note and, and, and you know all that it's always caveats but uh, great potentials for cash flows really a uh, good a uh, good potential opportunity for passive investors if you want to learn more about note funds continue listening to this episode. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split to return. Love learning new things. Love talking about node investing because again, I think it's a great opportunity that people just don't know about. If you don't know about node investing, this is a great way to get started. And if you do know about node investing, you just might learn something new today from Martin Signs. Without any further ado, here we go with the episode. Martin, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. You have such a, a cool story and a lot of things to teach us both about either entrepreneurship or real estate investing. But before we dive into that, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and what has you know led you to where you are today? Sure. In 2003, I was fired from a corporate job after receiving my MBA and really kind of like uh, my world came crashing down everything that I knew up until that point you know get you know getting a getting an MBA getting a nice nice secure uh, corporate job it kind of got turned on its head so my wife and I we really realized that um, we needed to to uh, take more control over our future and so we started a small business and what we learned with uh, small business ownership was that um, it can be very taxing, you know, hundred hour work weeks. And, you know, oftentimes you're, you're struggling to make payroll and um, you know, other kinds of uh, stresses that come along with small business. So we felt like we had obtained some level of freedom, but also we, we had some, you know, level of bondage that was placed upon us as well. Uh, whereas everyone was getting paid, but us, you know, for a time for for the at least the initial few years, we turned to real estate investing in '09, and 
we bought the building that we operated our company out of and we bought the neighboring building and we started buying commercial and residential properties. And the objective was to obtain financial freedom through landlording. And what we found is that is that it was it was great. You know, we were m- making a, a significant annuity play because these properties were getting paid down every month that the tenants were making payments. However, we found that we found that the cash flow was not matching our financial aspirations. And it, it wasn't, you know, we weren't moving fast enough in that regard. So um, we sold the we sold our company, which was a federal contracting company in 2013. And from there, um, I became a full-time node investor um, right out of the gate. So um, not finding financial freedom through small business ownership or landlording, which I own those properties still, by the way, we still manage those properties. However, we, you know, we never found it there. So um, I, I ventured off into node investing to obtain freedom of time. That was kind of a, a change in, in the paradigm shift in terms of how I was kind of looking at things. And so, so that was my, my newest objective was to, uh, was to really work on obtaining time in my life. Nice. And then kind of fast forward to where you are today and how you've progressed through uh, the note business. Uh, Tell us quick about the fund, if you would, just size and, you know, what you buy. Sure. So the, the fund is uh, Bequest funds is an income fund that pays accredited investors a preferred rate of 8% and it pays on a monthly basis. So it's really in a vehicle by which someone can place money into the fund and receive a monthly dividend payment. So um, in other words, it's, it's like creating a, an additional stream of, of cash flow for oneself. And we launched the fund as an evergreen fund. And with the intention of, of it being a legacy wealth play, for uh, myself and my partner, as well as all the investors that invest in the fund, something that you can place money into and have it have it grow and be passed down through generations over time. So, um, you know, forgive me for not knowing the term. What is what does evergreen mean in this context? So, a lot of funds come with an expiration um, time period and you know four or five years so what a lot of the fund managers uh, are looking for is they're looking to max out the fund uh, bequest is a 50 million dollar fund and so um what some funds do is they will go raise capital um you know build a portfolio and then liquidate that portfolio in in say a four-year time period um by which they pay out all they pay back all the investors their initial capital and and they receive a windfall for themselves as fund managers after liquidation occurs. Um, we weren't looking to do that with um, Bequest funds. We wanted something that um, you know would be would be a legacy play. Uh, you know, throughout the decades, as many of these mortgages that rest in the fund are twenty to thirty year mortgage streams. Okay, so fairly long term. And um, so, can you tell us a bit about how a note fund like makes that 8% and you know when you say 8% or you know whatever percentage return you happen to be paying to your investors in any given fund like how is that generated uh through 
the note investments? Sure. So um, I think I think it's it's good to uh, you know start at um, how how my origin started within the, the note investing space. So in 2013, I started out as a non-performing note buyer. So um, what that means is you have uh, just just to give you kind of some terminology, you have a promissory note. Right when you go go get a mortgage, you sign a promissory note saying that you, the bar, are going to pay back this amount of money to the lending institution over a certain set of uh, over a certain period of time at a certain interest rate and other terms involved, and you tie that promise to a property through a security instrument called a mortgage or deed of trust. So you have really two two instruments at play. Now, when a, when um, borrowers become in default and they and they stop paying their their mortgages for some for some reason because they've had some life occurrence, then those financial institutions will pull those mortgages and create tranches, and they will sell them off into the secondary market space at discounts. So my company buys those tranches in, in, in the millions. And we're, 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 um, a con, you know, considered a very large buyer of those mortgages in the secondary market space. So we have, a, we, we, um, work with bars to create payment plans that the bars can afford now that they're back on their feet. And through that, we create 20, 30 year streams of income for our company and our investors. Now, Bequest Funds is a separate arm in that it is a place where we place seasoned mortgages that have you know hit other metrics in terms of investment to value and, and other criteria. And we place those into the income fund as, as, a, as a legacy play for um, wealth building for, for myself, my partner, as well as, as all the investors that invest in Bequest. So we we buy those into our fund at a 12 to 14% yield and we pay our investors an 8% yield and the spread is is what's there to allow us to operate the fund gotcha okay so i suppose probably one of the biggest uh, i don't know objections or questions you get about it is like so if there's this 14 to 15% to be made why don't the banks do this on their own i mean they're probably starved for margin. Why do they sell these things off, you know, to investors like yourself rather than restructure the notes on their own? Yeah. So um, banks are not in the real estate business and they are not really, they are not really um, that sophisticated when it comes to working loan modifications. Plus a lot of those loans, when they're originated, they're originated with Fannie and Freddie underwriting guidelines. And they have certain restrictions being government-sponsored uh, loans. So they don't have the flexibility that, that someone like myself would have. So um, they cannot be creative in terms of payment plans. They take more of a rigid approach. So for them, it's better for them just to bundle that opportunity and sell it off. In some cases, and this is really above my pay grade because I'm not on that side of the fence as much. But in some cases, they'll charge off, banks will charge off this debt. So then they're going to write it off their books. And yet they still bundle it and sell it for a profit. 
there's all this kinds of accounting that's behind it. That's really, you know, outside my range of expertise. All that I know is that, is that I am embedded in the secondary market space and I receive these opportunities to buy this defaulted paper at a discount. Mm, okay. Now we find ourselves, uh, depending on who you ask, we may or may not currently be in a recession, but unemployment is way up. And I consider that enough of a sign of recession myself. Now, um, how do these, you know, note funds and notes in general perform during a recession? I mean, some folks can't make their mortgage payment. There's also quite a bit of uh, talk about forbearance out there that is maybe, I think, running out uh, soon, at least as we speak. Does that affect you? I mean, let's really learn about how this recession impacts note investors. Sure. Much of the forbearance programs run through the CARES Act, and those are for for um, government-backed mortgages. And it's not as a it's not applicable for the types of mortgages that that we own. We're more in a private space with the mortgages we own. However, we try to run in accordance to what the Care, CARES Act dictates, it, as just you know, just a matter of being kind of you know, being going along the um, the flow of the marketplace, if you will. And when um, when we've had occurrences uh, like pandemics or what have you, um, you know, we've been we've been very concerned and 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 gotten conservative in terms of our um, collectability percentages uh, that we're expecting. Normally, in our in in our industry and with our fund, we're looking at a ninety percent collected percentage. So, in other words, if you have 10 loans, you're looking at nine out of the 10 to be paying at any given time. So you, you can absorb a 10% default rate. So we, we anticipated at the lowest points in the market to be running at about a um, 80% collected, even 75%. And so we kind of prepared for that. However, we've been running um, this year that we're, that we're in now at a 93% collected percentage. So we've been above what the industry is is normally you know considers uh, tolerable. So you know we, we've been very fortunate. However, that that comes with a great deal of of focus on on one's portfolio, uh, whereby um, we emphasize with all our asset managers. You know, we emphasize relationship building with our bars. That's that's instrumental. That's kind of ingrained in our culture. So we're not we're not there just you know th- there as like a call center that a bar calls into. We have engagement with our bars, and we you know have it where they feel comfortable to call us if some occurrences come up, and we work with them. So I so so there's a trust level that's involved with with those relationships. So at the end of the day, if they're if they have to, if they lose their job and they have to make decisions about who to pay and who not to pay, we want the relationships to show at that point, and we you know where, whereby they're like, well, we we want to really pay this person, and it and it's their mortgage, by the way, where they live. So there there's also that factor involved. Now one of the big um questions that comes up when we're say talking about a single asset syndication, right? Is uh, we might have a five to seven year business plan and the way things are structured, if somebody passively invests, 
there are options to get out, but really you're, it's best if you plan to be in the investment for the full five to seven years with your fund. Um, you're, you're talking about creating your know, legacy income for 20 to 30 years, which is fantastic. But if, you know, before that time, somebody for whatever reason needs to exit the fund, are there options or, you know, what does that, um, look like if somebody needs to get out? Sure. And that, and that's a great question. Really what, um, my partner, Sean and myself, you know, what, what we had put out as the guidelines for the fund is that we buy loans, we buy loans into the portfolio. And these lo- when the borrowers make those monthly payments, we in turn use that capital to pay our investors on a monthly basis. So, so we receive payments in monthly and we pay our investors monthly. That's something that's very important to us because um, a lot of times, uh, you know, funds or, or other types of businesses, they're receiving that revenue on a monthly basis, but then they're holding back on paying investors. They're holding back and paying investors on a quarterly basis or, or semi-annual. So we receive the money and we pay the investors. Now, why I mention that is because we don't have any leverage in the fund. So we don't have any institutional debt. So our investors are first in line to receive payment. That's very important because um, because we go out to the marketplace and buy new product, buy new assets when we receive capital investors into the fund. So we're never stretched that way where we have to go and force someone's hand to stay in the fund. We have a one-year lock-in period, and that's just because it takes us some time to source opportunities and and place them with servicing, et cetera, et cetera. So there's some upfront cost in that. And and so all we ask is for a year's time period, and then someone can bounce out of the fund if they need to to go elsewhere. And what we'll do at that point is um, we will will either um, backstop it my partner and I will backstop that and we'll, we'll put up the money so the investor can go. Um, Cause I'm the largest investor in the fund as well, just so you know, so I can go put additional capital. And if I need to, someone needs to go, um, we can bring in new investor capital and then I can pay back that, that exiting investor, or we can liquidate some assets. The beauty about paper is that it's highly liquid. It can be moved very quickly. Okay. So, Say uh, with all these investments, one of the questions that also comes up sometimes with passive investors is the kind of documentation that they can expect for the tax man. Do they are investors receiving a K one or like a ten ninety nine or what does that typically look like? And before we you know preface this, no content on this show should ever be considered to be any kind of tax advice. Period. Ever this episode and all other episodes included. So just as an FYI, this is a general question. Talk to a CPA, but Martin, please take no, it away. <laughs> <laughs> I love the disclaimer. It, um, investors receive a K-1 at the end of the year. So these are, these are in interest payments that are made to the investor. So they will, um, again, they, they'll need to talk to their CPA, but um, you know, from our understanding, it will get taxed as ordinary income. Okay, okay. Good to know. So I suppose that incentivizes the use of something like a self-directed IRA or 401k, solo 401k or something like that, QRP that, you know, has some tax advantage to it, um, but compared to ordinary income type of thing. 
Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, we have some individuals, they'll, they'll use their, their um, Roth or traditional IRAs, solo 401ks. Um, we also have some, uh, also have some investors that um, are in riskier type um, opportunities. So they offset that risk by working, by placing capital in with Bequest as a way to uh, balance their portfolio. How about minimums on a minimum investment? Yes, uh, minimum is twenty five thousand. Okay, it's pretty reasonable. That's a reasonable minimum. That's pretty common. Restriction yes. is there a restriction to like accredited investors and that type of thing? Yes, it's um, registered as a five hundred six C income fund with the SEC. So uh, what that means is one's going to have to qualify as a, as an accredited investor to invest in the fund. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think these. Um, I think node funds are a great opportunity for you know, potential for some passive income that, that folks just don't know about. They might be looking in like the, the REIT space or things like that, where there's a, a lot of volatility in the pricing. There, there is more liquidity because you can sell a REIT, a publicly traded REIT at any time in 10 seconds. But what I've observed is they have a high dividend, but they tend to the price tends to get really whacked by things like the coronavirus or uh, the Great Recession, a Great Recession in which um, you know, many REITs never recovered that same price. So it took five to seven years of just dividend payments to make up for uh, the hit in, in, hit in value. So I certainly see the, the appeal of a, a note fund investment. So what, there's a few distinctions that I think someone needs to look at when, when considering a fund. And, and this is just in general, um, you know, not all note funds are created equal. Some are set up as, um, as, as a non-performing note fund. And, and that's fine. There's, it's going to pay more than 8%. It, it, but, you know, like anything else, there's always a higher risk associated. When, when a fund is buying non-performing assets into the fund and getting those notes to perform while they're in the fund. So, you know, an investor may hit a higher return, um, which it, it could be something that someone's looking for. Other funds um, like ours, in, in this case, is an income fund. So all the notes that are in the fund are performing. So, and, and they, all, they all hold a, um, we look for a 65% investment to value. And right now the funds collectively at about a 63 and a half percent investment to value. So, so that is if the fair market values, you know, is a hundred thousand for the portfolio, then, um, you know, we're at our, our purchase of that mortgage note is at no greater than 63,000. So in that investment to value uh, equation, you have basically two numbers, your investment, which you know how much you're investing and then your value and how do you know that? Is do you get a uh, broker's opinion, a value on each deal, or is it the you know original notes valuation, or how is that uh, determined? Particularly on a you know scale that you're doing, where you're doing so many notes that it's a substantial undertaking. Sure. So we hit a lot of data points when we're looking at fair market value. Um, you know, we're we're running through uh, resources like. Um, Data Tree, Realty Track, um, you know Zillow, Trulia, all those guys, as well as um, you know, we'll pull automated value method reports 
and in some cases BPO, depending on the value of the mortgage that we're purchasing. So, so we'll we'll triangulate all the data point all, all the data points that we're hitting to try to get some sense of the of the um, value of the asset value of the of the property is and in terms of you know what we pay as the investment you know then that's based on what our cash on cash expectations are for that opportunity mm, okay gotcha cool yeah i think uh the funds are really great and i appreciate you you know building out that world for us right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor all right martin i've got three questions i ask every guest on the show are you ready Yes, I am. All right. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? It would be, um, actually, it's kind of one and the same. It would be the, when I first started note investing, I put out 240000 of my own money to buy 10 first mortgage non-performing notes. And I got hammered. I got, <laughs> I beyond belief. And uh, they were junk properties in Ohio. I overpaid for them. Um, you know, there was, there was crime scene tape on one of the houses and, uh, I just, I learned so much about what not to do. And I'd say that's probably the best and worst investment. Maybe that <laughs> answers both questions. So did you, you said you got hammered. Did you like lose money overall? Did you break even? Like what happened? I probably I'd be lying to you if I said I break even. That would be like that. I'd be happy there. I probably lost about eighty thousand. Mm, interesting. So, was it a matter of um, like paying too? Well, obviously, paying too much, but not um, investigating the properties and seeing or not knowing what you don't know. I mean, I, I guess those are all the things. But I guess what would you do differently? Look at the properties first. That was, that's a very, that's a very astute question. I, I, I have to tell you because therein lies every, everything that I'm about right now. So, so the problem was I bought a note based on the perceived value of the property when I should be buying notes based on the cash flow potential of the note. And so that's what I learned first and foremost, and that's carried with me, you know, throughout the rest of my time as a uh, full-time investor. And that is um, focus on the bar and their ability to pay, and as well as the property, because that's going to be your collateral for, um, you know, in case of of the uh, of something bad happening with, you know, foreclosure or some other legal ramification. Wow. Well, we had the best investment. We might've had the worst investment too. I'm going to ask the question anyway. What is the worst investment you ever made? I would say um, in, in 2004, after I got fired from my uh, corporate job, I, um, my wife and I started a sign business a, under a franchise name. And it was the worst investment because we paid everyone but ourselves. Like everybody got paid, but us, and we worked our tail off. So we realized that, um, that, that was not the way to go. If you're going to work your tail off, you might, you have to be reaping the rewards of it. Nice. That's very true. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? That's an easy one. Buy assets that you can control and the cash flow. If it doesn't meet those two uh, parameters, then don't buy it. It's not worth it. 
Well, Martin, thank you for joining us today, teaching us about note funds, note fund investing, how it all works, how these things behave in a recession, and some moves, some good and bad moves that you made, I suppose, a lot <laughs> prior to getting into note investing or as you got into note investing. Uh, if folks want to learn more about your fund, learn more about you, where can they get in touch? They can go to bqfunds.com to learn more about the fund. And also, too, I, I've written four books on note investing, and they can go to note investing made easier com to uh, learn more about note investing in general. Awesome. Awesome. There are always, anytime notes come up, I feel like there are a lot of questions about where can I learn more about this? So books are certainly a welcome resource. Well, Martin, thanks once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated and it helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thanks for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.